I found myself on the same pitch as Keegan at the age of about 22, playing against my boyhood hero. I scored a tap-in goal. I came home on the Saturday night after the greatest moment of my life, really. I found myself thinking, I've dreamt of that since I was a little boy. I've tasted it and it's like hot sun running through my fingers. Welcome everybody, this is Simon Gilbert with Inspired. If you're new to Inspired, Inspired is about basically getting people from all sorts of different walks of life, sharing their faith journeys, and uh, hopefully as we learn from them, it does, yeah, it stirs our faith because we hear how through whatever difficulties, the challenges life, life has thrown at them, they are still in the game, if you like. And I suppose as I use that line, in the game, that relates particularly to this week's guests because um, we've got uh, Graham Daniels. Everyone knows him as Dano. Hi, Dano. Hi, Simon. Great to have you. Dano is the General Director of Christians in Sport. He's also a Director of Cambridge United. You're also uh, on the staff of uh, St. Andrew's the Great Stag in Cambridge. And we, our, our paths first crossed. It was either 1994, 1995, we're doing a, a mission. I was a student at Loughborough University, so I'm passionate about my sports and I was in charge of organizing this mission. We got you along. and. Uh, there were two things I remember that talk that uh, actually I'll tell you what. Let's maybe we'll come to them, maybe we're in it. But, but uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I can actually remember you're a good communicator because that is what is that 30, 28 years ago, and I can still oh, remember two things. So terrifying. Yeah, terrifying. good stuff. Well, listen, Dano, uh, let's just get crack on straight in there. I'd, I'd, can you, you? You're you're from Wales. Can you paint us a, a picture of your childhood? Sure. Uh, Welsh speaking, uh, southwest Wales village, uh, mm -hmm. chapel going. A Welsh-speaking chapel, broad liberal, not particularly teaching the Bible uh, in any kind of rigorous fashion, more uh, morality and anecdote. Mm -hmm. uh, so that would be the culture I grew up in. Um, rugby was all. You couldn't play football. That was yeah. barred because it was the wrong game. Mm -hmm. Wales were brilliant at rugby. It was the 60s and 70s. So uh, grammar school, uh, the old grammar school system. So uh, that really gave me an opportunity, I guess, to, to uh, widen horizons because you could get into the sixth form and then go off to uni as a first-generation child to do that. So that's a broad brushstroke of background. And uh, good family, solid background on that level? Yeah, super. Uh, Mum and Dad, uh, just uh, really brilliant people. Actually, uh, I was adopted. My sister and I both adopted as little babies. Uh, mm -hmm. We weren't biological uh, relations, uh, but both came to uh, Wales from uh, a Baptist Union children's home okay. in the early 60s. So adopted by uh, two incredible people. Actually, I never used to talk about adoption uh, when they were alive. Uh, they've, my dad passed away probably eight or nine years ago now, my mum before that. Mm -hmm. I, I just felt they, I could never think of them as anything other than my mother and father. Mm. Never could, never did, and don't. Uh, but it's been funny, as, as I've got older and as life goes on and you learn a bit more, uh, I realise there's a providence, obviously, in the fact that uh, I was a child in a children's home in England. I was adopted... Uh, through the Baptist Union into the lives of my parents, yeah. uh, which in the end led me to faith a bit later in life. So I got older and realized what a wonder God was to do that for me. Mm. Uh, so I think you came to faith when you were about 15. Can you tell us about that story? Yeah, it, it started then. It was a little bit later, effectively. Mm -hmm. 
I was picked for my school cricket team uh, just after the end of year exams in what's now year 10. So mm -hmm. Mock time, I suppose, before GCSEs, a year before GCSEs as they stand today. And I wasn't at school. I should have been at school, but I wasn't. And it turned out that the school cricket team was short of a player last minute. Somebody was ill last minute. Right. And somehow they ended up picking me up. It's terrible, really. It wouldn't happen now. They ended up picking me up in the school minibus to go to Cardiff to play cricket 50 miles away. Uh, didn't know anybody on the bus at all. Uh, Lem boy's teacher. Uh, so I'll tell you the story quickly and I'll pause in it so you can jump back in. Mm -hmm. So what happens is... Uh, we go to the game, captain is very kind to me and sits next to me, talks to me a little bit on the way there. Uh, when I get there, I'm third man and I don't bat. If you know cricket, you understand that. If you yeah. don't, it means I was a complete spare part <laughs> yes. and I was only there, literally there to make up the 11, <laughs> just in case they needed me to swing my bat at the end. Uh, I didn't need to. Uh, we walked the game. The guy who sat with me scored loads of runs and took loads of wickets and was pretty much single-handedly the champion. Mm -hmm. uh, he was like a king of school because he was in the upper six. They were on the sixth form. On the way back, he says to me, 50-mile journey, we're just out of Cardiff, heading for Llanelli. He says, uh, what did you do at the weekend? It was a Monday. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I played cricket Saturday. I didn't do anything Sunday. He said, oh, you don't go to chapel? I said, no, I used to go when I was a boy. <laughs> I was only 15 mm -hmm. when I was a boy, uh, but I, I won't go anymore. It makes my mum unhappy, but I, I don't want to go anymore, so I don't go. So I said, so I said Sundays are really boring, because in the back in the day, there was nothing on the telly, no sport, nothing. I say to him, what did you do at the weekend, out of politeness? He says, oh, I played cricket Saturday, went to church Sunday. And immediately... My, my respect for him as king of school, with a bit of a beard and everything, in the upper six, brilliant sportsman, disappeared, disappeared. I said, why do you still go to chapel? Uh, and he said, uh, he, he blushed, he coloured up and he said, um, but because I follow Jesus. And I said to myself, 45 miles to go. <laughs> I'm absolutely trapped. Uh, so I, I can't tell the whole story in one go because I've been going on forever. That's how it started. That's what. That's how it started. And perhaps I'll lead you to another point by saying that guy kept in touch with me from the age of 15 to when I finally turned to Christ at the age of 21, even though I left Nethi for Cardiff to play football and go to university, and then Cardiff for Cambridge to play football. He kept in touch with me through all that time wow. faithfully. Mm. faithfully so that's how it started okay so we'll get the continuation uh, shortly um so you, you, now obviously wales passionate about their rugby not into football how did you manage to get get you know on the radar of of scouts and stuff like that well you couldn't play football gosh no one's ever asked me that thank you uh you couldn't play football until the sixth form really at school right. Uh, you're just about allowed to play then, but sometimes if you, uh, year 11 as it is now in, in England, anyway, sorry, in England, 16-year-old, uh, uh, you could play at that point. Uh, so just before you got to 17. Mm -hmm. So I asked the PE department if they'd let me play, and they said yes. So I played for the school first 11 with some older boys, and I was better at football, so I was decent. And then I was selected for... Um, the Welsh schoolboy team uh, went through the national trials and 
I was signed by Cardiff City, which was the city about 50 miles away from where I grew up. So I started playing for them when I was uh, 16, 17. Really. Professionally? Uh, I, I, well, <laughs> I keep veering off on stories. Typically, you'd leave school at 16 and become an apprentice professional to 18. Mm-hmm. But uh, I had a brilliant head teacher at school, just the most brilliant head teacher. It was a it was a working class industrial town I lived in, mining, steel production, and so on. I had this amazing head teacher who came to see my mother and father and told them I shouldn't leave school to go and play football, okay. but I should stay at school and go at the weekends and in the vacation. I did that through the sixth form. I didn't want to. I wanted to go off and play football. And then he insisted on helping me to go to university in the city in Cardiff where I was going to play football. Right. And so for five years, I trained and played very regularly, but kept on studying. That wasn't done in those days. And it was all down to that one man, Dennis Jones, his name was. What an mm. absolute giant doing that for one child. Mm. So that, that's how I got into the football. Yeah. And uh, so it was during your time at Cardiff University that you, that you sort of crossed the line, as it were, in terms of clinching the deal faith-wise, was it? Mm, more, more or less, just about. So off to go, football, uh, obviously thrilled, absolutely buzzing that I was able to play uh, for Cardiff and the youth team because that was my dream. I wanted to be a footballer. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the time, especially when I moved to Cardiff at 18 uh, to study and play, this guy, his name was Guion Jenkins, used to write to me. Now, obviously, it was before, <laughs> before phones, mobiles, yeah. Uh, it, it, probably before the internet, in fact. Uh, so it was handwritten letters coming through my door mm. from the postman, and he'd write to me. And I did philosophy at university because there were only four lectures a week and two tutorials, so I could train <laughs> every day. Uh, I did, I did, I really did. Uh, and so he used to write to me, and of course I thought I was clever uh, because I was doing philosophy, I was a philosopher. Uh, and so he used to write to me defending the Christian faith uh, and I would argue and he did that right through university amazing, what an amazing guy what a faithful guy I graduated actually met three Christians at university uh, over the three years I was there liked all of them went to a carol service in my final year as a student nobody knew I was there slipped in at the back late and listen to the talk. And that was the beginning. Around there was the real beginning of thinking hard about Jesus. I, after graduating a few months later, uh, moved to Cambridge to play football full time. And when I got here, I'm here now, we're doing this interview and I'm in Cambridge. I played against my boyhood hero when I was a little kid. I supported Liverpool. And their captain when I was a little boy was called Kevin Keegan, and he was mm-hmm. very famous at the time. And uh, he went on to play for England and captain England. And he was a huge football guy back in the day. Uh, and Cambridge United were playing Newcastle United. And he was playing for them in his last season as a professional footballer. So I found myself on the same pitch as Keegan at the age of about 22. Mm. Playing away at Newcastle with 40,000 people in the ground. And I'm playing against my boyhood hero. It was a ridiculous, surreal experience. Yeah. Utterly surreal. And I scored, I scored a, I scored a tap-in goal. I just, the ball came across and I just tapped it across the line. 
Um, I should say, Simon, that if people look in the Guinness Book of Records online, <laughs> I think they'll find that Cambridge United in that season, which was 1983 to 84. I think we're still in it because between October and March, so over a six-month period in that year, we played uh, 31 games, drew four and lost 27. Yes. And I played in all of them. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but that goal came in that brilliant 31-game losing run. Uh-huh. Uh, but it was a goal at Newcastle. And I, I came home on the Saturday night, of course, with the team bus, uh, went out with my friends to, to a sort of club, nightclub, after the game. On Tuesday night, we played a much smaller team, a lower team in a cup competition. And on the bus on the game on Tuesday, after the greatest moment of my life, really, uh, I found myself thinking, I dreamt of that, I was 22, I've dreamt of that since I was a little boy. I've tasted it, I've tasted it. And it's like, sorry, mixed metaphor, hot sun running through my fingers. It was like I'd lifted some sand up and it was gone. And all I could think of was my friend Guion. Intent, mm. peaceful, decent, great sportsman, kind, honest. And I just thought, I've got to get a grip on who Jesus is. And it was then uh, I, I spent six months. I was here in Cambridge. for the, I was on my own. My, the girl I married hadn't come to Cambridge yet. I had a lot of time on my hands because I'd finished work by lunchtime every day because of football. No studies. And I just went to a bookshop and started buying books about Jesus and the Bible and history of the church and so on. And I just started reading. And some six months after that Newcastle game, uh, I read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Mm. And as I read that in my digs, in my room, one night I thought, wow, that is is an empirical claim. It's a factual claim. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, your faith is false. Yeah. Therefore, if he did rise from the dead, your faith is true. And at that, at that night, I said, Lord, I think you're there. I think you're real. I think you died for me. What I've read seems to be accurate. So I didn't know anybody in Cambridge, but I gave my life to Christ that night, and he never let me down for one split second ever since. Not once. Incredible. Amen. So did you just literally kneel on your bedroom floor and and pray? I literally sat in my chair in my room and I should have been out. Yes, I said, Jesus, I think you're real. I've read a few books. (laughs) I mean, I was sitting, you know, I spent this six months. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell Guion. Mm -hmm. Just I would go to a Christian bookshop and buy books. So there was a book from, what is it, 1984 or five, uh, called Evidence That Demands a Verdict mm-hmm. by Josh McDowell. And I read that first and I was thrilled because, of course, I'd done some philosophy and, and the whole thing was, you know, if, if it's not empirical, if it's not scientific, if you can't prove it, if there's no evidence. So I read McDowell and I went, wow, wow. Look at the New Testament documents. Look at the data. Look at the manuscripts. And so it was all very exciting. So, yeah, six months later... I just thought, well, this is true. If Jesus rose from the dead, uh, faith is true. God is real. I can know about him. What I'm told can be depended on. The apostles were the eyewitnesses. I believe it. And Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. And that was it. And about a week later, 
I went to town. I was in the city with a friend of mine from work, from football, after training. And I was on King's Parade, which is an iconic up part of Cambridge, in front of King's College. And uh, a guy went past us who was about three years older than me at school, not Guion Jenkins, but a boy who was a Christian at school. I remember he was a Christian. And I couldn't believe it. I shouted after him, Michael, Michael Jenkins, Michael Jenkins. And he turned around and I saw his face, you know, because he was a clever boy. He was doing a PhD in Cambridge. And, you know, and I was a rugby and soccer player from school. Uh, and I saw the horror in his face when he saw me. <laughs> I did, I did. He was, oh, no. I could see him thinking, it's that wretched boy from home. What's he doing here? And I ran after him. I said, Michael, are you still a Christian? And I could see the cynicism. <laughs> you know, as if I was going to take the mickey. <laughs> Big fun. And he, he said, Yes. I said, well, so am I, so mm. am I. And fair play, he took me for a cup of tea. Mm. I took me to church on Sunday and off I went. Yeah, brilliant. Off I went. brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. So, I mean, it sounds like it was very rational you're, you're coming to faith, it was, you know, as a philosopher answering questions. Was there so any any emotion in there? Was there any sort of, I mean, dramatic bright lights? I think when I came to faith, I, I didn't have the dramatic lights, but I expected it. And so I doubted whether I had come to faith without them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I make, I make it sound rational. Listen, I'm not bright enough for it to be rational. Um, <laughs> th- there was reasoning in it, but that's obviously because a 21, 22-year-old, you know, all I had in life, if you like, in my brain was formed by those three years pretending to be a philosopher mm-hmm. and therefore listening to the ideas of the day, isn't it? Which, which was all about evidence and truth and fact and, and so on. Yeah. and cynicism about uh, spiritual matters completely. Um, there, there weren't bells and whistles and lights, no, uh, but it was a very, very existential experience. It was very deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, I, I, was, I, I was, for the six months before I became a Christian, uh, I couldn't believe it really. I'd yearned, and of course this will tie in, I guess, to the rest of my life. I'm 16, I was 21 then. Um, everything was about making it in football. Mm. Just my whole being, my whole purpose and meaning in life was I was going to make it. I was going to make it to the top of the tree in football. And, and as soon as I stopped my studies and just played football, it was so disappointing. And yet I was in, I was in the team and I was in a club which is at the second tier of English football, uh, one below the Premier League, now called the Championship. And that's where I was playing and it was empty. It was flat. Mm. Uh, so simultaneously I was drawn to Jesus, drawn to what God had to say because there was no doubt in my mind that this was not it. So that was the experiential aspect of it and the sheer unadulterated fulfilment that came in the weeks after becoming a Christian. Mm. Were you already a quite nice guy? There wasn't much of a change or was it a radical change in you? Did people notice straight away? Well, the, probably the person best equipped to call that was the girl who I later married, Michelle. We'd been uh, going out together since we were 15 and she was a year ahead of me at university in Cardiff as well. When I moved to Cambridge, I became a Christian. Uh, so I moved to Cambridge at the start of the season, 1983 to 84, and I, I was converted in February 84. Now, 
my wife to be was wasn't with me but we got we got married we got married in that period but she didn't move until the end of the academic year i became a christian three weeks after getting married mm -hmm. february 84 we were married just after christmas uh and she wasn't living with me so when she came up to visit about three weeks up later i, I didn't know what to tell her I, I just said she came on a Friday night. We were playing at home on Saturday. And I started going to church with this guy. And she came on Saturday night. And uh, a Friday night, I said, I tried to tell her, but I, could, I was too scared. Uh, and then after the game on Saturday, I said, you know, tomorrow, um, I've been going to church for a few weeks. I don't know if you fancy coming. She said, do you want to come with me before you go back to Wales tomorrow? And she said, going to church? What are you going to church for? <laughs> uh, and I told her the story. And I hadn't told her any of this. Yeah, I was embarrassed in many levels, you see, about it. Mm. And yet I'd become a Christian. Christ was in me. So this is February. She moved to Cambridge after the summer vacation, so in September. And she came to Christ in November. And she said that she'd never seen anything like it in me. She thought I was a completely different person. Wow. I didn't think I was at all different. I really didn't think I was the slightest bit different. Mm. All I can imagine is that she could see Christ in me, yeah. and she knew probably, she knew my weaknesses and deceits, tacitly knew them better than most people. Mm. So. Yeah, and um, well, you say that you were a bit embarrassed before her. I know part of, I've heard you talk about Guion and how he, tell that mm. bit about his embarrassment when he shared with you. No, oh, thanks for remembering that. Not long after I was converted, in fact, I phoned Guillaume after I told Michel, and I, and I phoned him and said, um, Hiya, Guillaume, I've got some news for you. And he said, oh, yes, how are you? I said, very good. He said, what's the news? Who are you playing Saturday? Or have you scored? You know, he, was, he thought it was a football news. And uh, I said, yeah, I've become a Christian. <laughs> and it was silent at the other end of the phone. And I thought he hadn't heard me. So I said, did you hear me? I've become a Christian. And he said, uh, Yes, I did, but he wasn't a happy voice. And, and I said, is that okay? And he said, yes, good, good, good. <laughs> and this was February, so when I went home at the end of the season in early May, he said, I'm so sorry for sounding so miserable when you told me you were a Christian. He said, uh, he said, people often say they become a Christian, but you're not quite sure what they mean by it. Or, or if they've gone to a church or what the church is like, God. I just wanted to check out what you were, where you were going. So I, he asked me where I went to church, and I told him about Michael Jenkins taking me. He phoned Michael Jenkins, and then he was happy. Mm. So, so he was happy when I came over this summer, but he was wanting the best for me, obviously, isn't it? He wanted the best for me. That's what it was. Yeah. But he then told me the story that on that day on the bus to play cricket in Cardiff, uh, when he asked me what did I do at the weekend and I asked him and he reciprocated and I said what are you, are you a Christian for and he said why do you because he said because I follow Jesus and he said to me he went home that night from the game and his mum and dad were waiting when he got home and they said how did the game go and he said okay and they said doesn't look okay you've got a long face and he said well I scored lots of runs and took lots of wickets so it went really well and they said, well, what's the matter then? And he said, well, you know, yesterday in church, there was a sermon about sharing your life and your faith with others. 
he said, well, I realised at 18 I've never done that. So I decided that this week I would do it as soon as I got a chance. And a boy got on the bus because we were one short. A boy a few years younger than us jumped on. And I sat by him. And on the way back, I started a conversation with him. And he asked me what I asked him about what we did at the weekend. And he asked me about Sunday. My heart started to race because I realised this was my chance for the first time ever to tell somebody that I was a Christian and to get into a conversation about it rather than people who knew I was a Christian. Mm -hmm. And he asked me, he told his parents, he asked me why I was a Christian. He said, and I blushed and I said, because I followed Jesus. And the boy completely stopped talking to me. He said, that was me, of course. <laughs> he stopped talking to me. I embarrassed myself. I was useless. I'm never doing it again. I'm the worst evangelist who ever lived. Oh. And he told me that story. And Simon, I tell that story as often as I can to yeah. younger people. Mm. Because I want to say to them, I, I met Jesus because a guy blushingly and falteringly and embarrassed about it tried to tell me about Jesus Christ. Yeah. The worst evangelist ever. Mm. And I got converted to Christ because of him. Yeah. So if that if God could do that with him when he felt like that about it, what can he do with any of us if we dare open our mouths Absolutely. when people have some time to listen to us? So yeah, that was his embarrassment when he told me, and that's the wonder of Jesus being kind enough to use all of us to make a difference in his absolutely, creation. Absolutely. And that's a real encouragement to me. I mean, even in a couple of hours time, I'll be going out, hopefully not my own, but because I put it out in the WhatsApp group, but we go out onto our estate and we get chatting with people and we go door knocking. And, and I, sometimes it feels utterly bumbling and pathetic. And yet, uh, yeah, I had the chance to lead someone to the Lord that way two weeks ago. And it's just about uh, not leaving our light under, under a sort of bushel, isn't it? Hey folks, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I'm loving the response we're getting from across the world. It's, it's just wonderful to see how encouraging and inspiring it is being and hitting the spot. Listen, if you are being blessed by it, I'd love it. Basically, this happens under the auspices of our ministry, Great Lakes Average, which works in the poorest and the hungriest country in the world, which is Burundi. We're having an incredible impact in the toughest of circumstances. We want to carry on supporting those local folks doing a great job. So if you wanted to, greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired you could make a donation there i'd so appreciate it also it's word of mouth isn't it so gossip this, these podcasts to other people get them to subscribe give us a great review absolutely wonderful so grateful to you so that's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired if you want to do a monthly a couple of quid a month or, or a one-off donation we'd be incredibly grateful all right now let's get back to the podcast So listen, we need, we need to crack on. I'm guessing in terms of your career. I mean, you, my I mean, I'm a I was a not not a, a great cricketer, but that was my passion at school. My my life highlight, sports wise, was it was hitting at six at the home of cricket, Lords. Oh, um, any oh. other, any as yeah, and you know you think about that, don't you? Have you got any other sort of quick highlight, highlights to share for you? No, <laughs> really? that's the whole point. <laughs> the, the bad thing is. Sometimes people say this is false modesty if I say it, but it really isn't because I know professional football inside out. Right. Uh, I was okay, but I wasn't very good. Okay. I was good enough to be a professional. I was good enough to play for three or four years, you know, having come to Cambridge. 
but that was the limit of it. You know, mm -hmm. I really wasn't very good. And if I'd have carried on working in football as a player from 25 onwards, where we'd started a family, I would have scrabbled around in the, in the lower divisions trying to get work every year right. and moving house. I was not a top player. Happily, I played part-time, semi-professionally, and managed uh, teams mm -hmm. in my 30s and into my 40s. And then I joined Cambridge United. I went back to Cambridge United as a director at the football club uh, when I was 50, which is about 10 years ago. So uh, I never did anything better than score a goal at Newcastle, just like you hitting a six at Lord's. <laughs> there was a highlight. Uh, but God kindly, I suppose, well, not I suppose, God kindly, by my mid-twenties, had helped me to see how my vocation was shaping. I went to theological college, I left football, went to theological college, made a living by playing part-time football to help raise the family. And that set me up then into my 30s to combine football management and uh, working as a Christian minister in a church and for Christians in sport. So that was the trajectory of my 20s. All right. Now, Christian Sport, brilliant organisation. Loads of my friends have benefited from it. Uh, really grateful for it. Really grateful for your role as a spearhead. You didn't actually start it, did you? It was. Um, you no. tell the funny story of uh, some posh guy showing up at your club. Go on, can you share that. <laughs> oh, well done. Uh, Andrew Wingfield Digby yeah, was the first man. director of Christians in Sport, the wingers. Uh, and uh, he, he was at Wycliffe Hall in Oxford, training to be an Anglican minister when an American showed up and said, what have you been doing this week to Wingers, who was a cricketer? And Wingers said, uh, he said, well, let's see what have I done. He said, well, we had a three-day game, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Thursday, we had some lectures. We had a one-day game yesterday on Friday. I've got nets this afternoon, Saturday, and I'll go to church tomorrow. And this guy said, has it ever occurred to you that God is interested in your sport as well as your training to be a clergyman? And he says, never occurred to me in my life. He said, but you're only going to do clergy work a day and a half this week. You're playing cricket five days. Hmm. Uh, and Winger said, it's the first time in his whole life yet it ever occurred to him that cricket wasn't just some byproduct, but could well be an aspect of his own discipleship yeah. and what God was doing in him. And then he started a little prayer meeting at Oxford uh, for other university sports players. And that was the origin of Christians in sports. So he was my predecessor. Uh, and he showed up at my football club after I'd been converted to Christ in 84. And they said in reception, which was a porter cabin, uh, there's, there's a very posh guy in reception waiting for you. I said, oh, no need to be sarcastic, because they, they thought it was funny that I'd been a student once. Uh, and I wore glasses and needed contact lenses and drove a Morris Minor. And so they, they used to say I was posh when I was from the Welsh working class. <laughs> but because I wore glasses, uh, had a Morris Mine and stuff. And so they said, there's a posh guy in reception. I said, stop taking the mickey. They said, no, there really is. There really is. And he's really posh. So I went to the reception and uh, there was Andrew Wingfield Digby who introduced himself and said, hello. Hello, I'm Andrew Wingfield Digby. Uh, I gather you're a Christian. And I'd been baptised. There'd be some little article in the local newspaper. Fair play. Somebody had called him. He came to see me. And he said to me, well, yo, we've got a segue, haven't we? He says to me, uh, he says, oh, Graham, do you know there are more players playing professional football or Christians? 
And I knew they weren't, because I'd, be, I'd been a Christian a few months now, and every game I went to, I asked people I knew in other clubs, anyone a Christian here? And everyone looked at me as if I was you know, a fool. Uh, so I'd been asking for months. And I said, no, there aren't. He said, oh, yes, there are. And I thought, how do you know? Posh, man. How on earth do you know? You don't know football. You're a cricketer anyway. I'm a posh dude. So he says, oh, there are. I said, no, really, there aren't. He said, no, there are. I said, well, all right then. How many are there? Now, 90 professional clubs. So I'm thinking, all right, he's Mr. Christians in sport. He's got this organisation. He's very confident. He knows his onions. Uh, and he went to Oxford. So I thought, right, there must be lords then. I must have blind spots. So I said, how many then? And he said, four. He said, four? 90 clubs? I thought, your organisation isn't much use. He said, four? I said, well, who are they? And he named three. I said, well, who's the fourth? He said, you. So I thought, well, you joker. Uh, uh, but you know what it did? It just, then, of course, you know, banter aside, I got to know him, and he'd only been going since 1984. It was 1984. Mm. Uh, and boy, did I learn from him in the next five years. Yeah. Oh, my word. Uh, what a visionary. What a visionary. And so that's why I got into the little movement that was called Christians in Sport. Yeah. Brilliant. And um, go on, tell us about Christians in Sport then. Share, share the sort of the brief. Well, the name's on the tin, I think. Mm. Uh, you know, I told you the Guillon story. Yeah. Christians in Sport is far more than the story of two boys, but, but it is a parable. I suppose, of Christians in sport. Uh, it, it's people who play any kind of competitive sport. So I suppose the bottom line would be uh, there's lots of play and recreational games where you show up and play volleyball on the rec or something, or you, you put on a little tournament on your estate, but there's not a team and they don't train twice a week. There's a whole world of things that can happen around that, aren't there, that Christians can be involved in. Christians in sport doesn't quite fit in there. It fits in for the girl or boy, man or woman, uh, who trains once or twice a week or, and races or plays soccer, rugby, cricket, tennis, frisbee. They're in a team and it takes up a chunk of their life. Uh, so it's for competitive sports people uh, and elite, high-profile sports people as well. Mm -hmm. And it just helps Christians, encourages Christians to live out their life of discipleship in their calling in sport uh, and to share their life and their faith with other people. So that happens with young people, it happens at universities, it happens in professional sport, it happens across the world in all those areas. Mm. That's Christians in sport, it's very simple. And it's relevant to so many of us, so many of you guys listening, um, you know, it could be a resource, a network. Uh, there are camps going up the road for me right now at Moncton Coombe, uh, Christians of Sport camps. Um, I just, just jumping back a bit, um, you know, you say you're a Liverpool fan. So I think of the Liverpool team, well, Mane's just left as, as a Muslim. Mo Salah's a Muslim. You've got uh, Alisson, you've got Firmino, you've got maybe a few others who are Christians. So, so nowadays, it's very different from your day. And nowadays, you know, people are, don't, are very sensitive, be it ethnic, religious stuff, to, to not be scornful and plain, you know, bullying rude. Did you face much, much ostracism and, and sort of persecution even when you gave your life to Jesus? Mm. Uh, you'd say that now. Uh, you're exactly right, Simon. You're spot on. Culture's changed enormously. Uh, and in all sorts of ways, things that happened in life and sport in the 80s and 90s would never be, couldn't happen now. Uh, they, they just wouldn't happen now. Just to start with your 
Liverpool group that you mentioned there, it does represent an enormous change. Uh, if we stick to football, which I know best, though this happens across elite sport, I mean, there are so many people who'd say they're Christians now, uh, and, and of course, more of a Muslim presence as well uh, in professional sport. So there's a sensitivity around dressing room behaviour, which means that things I'd have had incredible uh, stick for being a Christian, uh, an incredible stick. And, you know, some of the stories are funny. I, I wore lenses and uh, in one game, I'd, I'd said I was a Christian and it was a public thing in my own city, Cambridge, and we were a bad team and we were losing a lot of games. Uh, one day, one of my lenses fell out on the touchline and I saw it drop as you do sometimes and I could see roughly where it had gone. Um, and we were in the middle of a game, so I, I, went, I went down on my knees to pick it up and somebody shouted from the crowd, Oi, Daniels, you're, we know you're having an absolute mare, but now is not the time to pray to play better. Uh, you know, it's like thousands of people around him laughing their heads off, you know. Uh, so, I mean, all kinds of banter. I did a PhD on this, actually, uh, because before I retired from work, somebody had told me there was no, there was nothing written academically about uh, how identity is formed in elite Christian athletes, mm -hmm. i.e. no comparison of the experience of people in professional sport to become a Christian to the everyday experiences in that sport if you're not a Christian. Right. So I interviewed some of the bigger sort of names of the 90s from when I was reading the Bible with them, Gavin Peacock, Cyril Regis, for example, are in it. Mm -hmm. um, and they tell, you know, horror stories of being bullied when they first became a Christian, like real horror stories of people putting notes under their door with spiteful, nasty, blasphemous things written on them, mm -hmm. uh, of being ostracized by a dressing room uh, because they, for example... Um, in those days, if the players had a night out, they'd often be a, a sort of female stripper, for example. And the yeah. player says, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing that. I'm mm. not doing it. I'll come for the meal. I'll mm. come for a trip, but I'm not doing that. I'm being thoroughly ostracized and really, really bullied in the change room for doing it. Mm. Uh, a boy standing up. I've got multiple stories. People standing up for people being bullied by the manager. Mm. A younger player being bullied by the manager and taking the manager on and saying, you'll have to fight me first. Don't bully him. And getting released by the club, you know, getting transferred. Mm. So, yeah, there, I don't want to go on, but there are multiple stories. But but this is the encouraging bit of it, Simon. One of the aspects of it is, if you stand out. So when people became, became Christians in my research, actually there's a pretty straightforward process that happens in the data. Number one, internally they find a new degree of fulfillment in christ mm -hmm. that they were promised from football but it can't deliver because of injuries transfer bad form and christ provides stability mm -hmm. in a way that the dream of football can't number two christ provides fulfillment you're expected to find your joy in making it i was that boy but actually when you meet christ there's an underpinning fulfillment that nothing in creation can compare to it doesn't diminish your calling or vocation in sport mm -hmm. but it transcends underpins choose the picture it fulfillment and security but they're both existential things they're inside you yeah so when you interview these players this is inside so the question is what happens outside and then this incredible thing happens to them 
It's God at work, isn't it? It's sanctification. They can't stop themselves taking themselves to work. They can't leave themselves at home and be the footballer at work. So they have to go and say, I'm not doing the stripper. Don't bully him. I'll sack you. Don't you tell me not to. Don't you tell me. I'm telling you, don't bully him. Right, you're sacked then. Mm. Uh, So you see these boys standing up for what's right in a way that it's not typical. Keep yourself to yourself. But they couldn't keep it in. It had to come out. And here's the last piece of the data. Once that happens in their lives, on the condition that they're good enough, because if you're not good enough, you can't stay in the game anyway, Mm -hmm. you can't get a job, on the condition that they're capable enough, and all of these were, which is why I interviewed them, without fail, when people see the authenticity in your public behaviour, that is an overflow of your heart behaviour, people turn to the Christian player and say, listen, my mum's sick. I don't know what to tell. I'm really scared she's going to die. Hmm. Could, we, could, could I talk to you about it? Listen, this is men, obviously, I was talking to. I, I'm not sure about my girlfriend. I don't think she's really happy. And people would open up about intimate things hmm. that never happened in a macho, uh, misogynist sometimes uh, environment. Uh, people opened up to these men. But they did it when they could see authenticity in their courage often against bullying. Yeah. And they sustained a playing career and people opened up to them. And many people became came to faith in that. I think one of the big causes in professional football of the number of Christians now is that so many people who work in football, major managers and directors of football, in English football particularly, and, and Scottish football, may not have come to faith in that period in the 90s, but the, the men I'm talking about, the Regis's and the Peacocks et al., they were such influences in the game, such big influences that people who knew them, who now work in football, even when they're not converted, have the deepest respect, but certainly for Christianity, and they welcome it in their dressing room mm. because they see the difference that Christians can make. It's brilliant, isn't it? it is isn't so that a brilliant good. thing to so, see? So. I know, just through the faithful witness of a handful of men when there were hardly any Christians. Yeah. That's how it seemed to work. Yeah, I mean that's so encouraging, isn't it? And inspiring. And if you're if you're mm. um, if you're out there doing your sports thing, and uh, it's encouragement to hang on in there. You mentioned Gavin Peacock. I, I preached with him on the platform um, in Wales about four years ago. I think he's in Canada. He's absolutely on fire yeah. and rocking it. Isn't yes, he? brilliant. Yeah, he is, and he was a, he was a brilliant leader. You know, and he tells terrible some terrible stories of being bullied at Chelsea, uh, even, even as a top player. Mm. a top, top player, even when he was captain of a top, top team. Mm. Um, so it, it's the likes of him who's who formed this culture in the 90s where people saw a top-level player as a Christian when there were hardly any and said, well, not only is he a good player, but those who played with him say he's the real deal. He's a proper good bloke. Yeah. And that's influenced the future. With and Of course, he used to feel a total failure. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? As you talked about your estate, as you agree on Jenkins, as I feel like pretty much all of the time, you know, I can tell you these stories about what's happened in sport and football, and, and yet, you know, it feels pathetic sometimes when I try and explain Jesus is good news to people in football. Mm. I think, well, I'm useless at this. Nothing's happening. 
But you can't look at it over a day or a week, can you? You've got to look at it after, over God's big goal, God's big picture yeah. of the gospel advancing. Mm. So that's what age gives you, I guess. Yeah. You can look back and see some of these things. Mm. Maybe last couple of questions. Uh, I'm, I'm fascinated in how you're stra- you've got straddling roles, haven't you? So you're general director of Christian Sport, but you're also a director of Cambridge United Football Club. How does mm. your faith play out in the, in the secular space now? Oh... Uh, I I just love it. I I thought I was finished with with football in one sense. Uh, I became a director of Christians in Sport when I was 40. I'm 60, as I said earlier. Um, And I stopped managing very demanding semi-professional football because you couldn't do it all. I just couldn't do everything. So I dropped down the levels and just did local football. And then out of the blue, when I was 50, Cambridge United approached me and asked me if I'd like to join their board. Um, so I've had a decade of it. Mm. Uh, I live 10 minutes from the ground, 10 minutes from church in the city centre of Cambridge, 10 minutes from the football ground. Uh, with my travel for Christian sport and my church in Under the Great and the football club, I feel I've got this amazing privilege of being involved in it. At Cambridge United, oh, it's what most people, you know, my job has been in Christian work, really paid Christian employment. But at the football club, it's fantastic because I get to be part of the governance of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. A director, we've got a key, a lead owner who's a great guy. And our job is to set the culture of the football club. Mm. The job of the board of directors of the non-exec is always to set the culture for executive appointments. So it's amazing. And as part of it, I, I pray all the time, my, my fellow directors and senior staff and executive staff, chief executive, director of football, head coach. I mean, everybody knows about my own faith. And there are a number of people who are Christians within the institution. Um, I, 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 you've caught me a bit because I don't quite know how to describe it. I, I just know that I go there knowing Jesus loves me, knowing that he gave me whatever things I've got to contribute to the institution, mm-hmm. and knowing that it's my home city now for 40 years, and it deeply embeds me across the city because thousands of people love the football. Mm. All I know is that God is kind, and he does use sport, regardless of people's faith, to knit communities together to give a sense of belonging and worth and value and joy and community. And then his special grace, not his common grace, periodically flows out and that people actually see the saviour who's behind the sport. Mm. Uh, and that's that's how it goes. That's how it works, yeah. Wonderful. Hey, listen, um, I don't want you to clock off in a couple of minutes and think, oh, I really wish I said that. So, so a last chance to say something as we, as we close out. Uh, anything to clear? No, yeah, yeah, you're a brilliant interviewer. I mean, it, it, I've forgotten we're in an interview. I've <laughs> completely forgotten. I was, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I'm conscious that when you're asking me questions and I'm saying I this, I that, uh, there's a risk that that sounds you know, a bit of hubris in there. I really don't mean it to sound like that. I know who's in charge of this universe yeah. and he's very, very, very kind to us and it's an amazing privilege to be called by him and, and to have some little part to play in the kingdom. So that's my greatest privilege and mm. I hope it can end 
well. You said right at the start, didn't you? Still in the game. Yeah. Uh, I've come to the point now in life where I sometimes will see somebody I haven't seen for 20 years mm. uh, and I bump into somebody. And the first thing I think all the time is I say to them, well, we're still here, aren't we? We're not in heaven yet and we're still in the race in this life. Thank God I'm still in the race. That's what I feel every day. Mm. Thank God that he's holding on to me. So easy to get lost, to veer away, uh, to fall off and he's still got me. That's the greatest thing. It's mm. my, my greatest, greatest joy today. Oh, Amen. Okay, you mentioned um, earlier on the interview, so, and I've said that I remember something from your talk from, what, 28 years mm. ago, Loughborough Campus, uh, 1994, <laughs> whatever it was. And that was you measuring out nine meters, one, one, one with your long strides. And uh, to illustrate how far nine meters is, when I think it was, was it Carl Lewis and Bob Beeman, the world record uh, mm. in the long jump at the time. Mm. So th that's what I remember. I can't remember what you're illustrating. What was it? <laughs> See, that's the trouble. If I was any good at preaching, you'd always remember the point, not, not the illustration. And anytime anyone says, oh, I remember a talk you gave, I know what they're going to say. I could have predicted you'd say, oh, you had a great story. <laughs> Forget the text. <laughs> Tragic. Uh, well, it was, it was. I forgot I'd used it as well. Because uh, you know what happens, you have a couple of years and you go, oh, that's great, I'm going to use that. And then you forget all about it, don't you? Yeah. It is the gap between us and God. We think, we think it's nothing, but once we actually see how big it is, we know you cannot jump it. You cannot cross it yourself and he has to come across to you. So that's what's behind it. Right. Uh, and so it's a question of sin and how you get saved. But there we are. You remember the story, which is all really... <laughs> nice one and i can hear you while talking background so that probably means that our time is up you can. it has you been can. an absolute treat thanks so much for your time it's been a pleasure simon thank you so much an absolute honor to be on with you oh, and best wishes to you brilliant so listen folks uh, I, I hope you've been inspired I've loved it and if you have been inspired you know, share it with someone share it with loads of people that's how this is getting more and more traction I'm loving it it's just about everywhere I'm going people even last night people, someone came up to me and said uh, I'm loving it I've listened to every single one I'm passing on to friends so that's how you can help us you can give us a great review on iTunes or Spotify um, you can be in touch with me if you want to on simongilbo.com or any of the social media platforms and we'll be back next time with another fantastic fantastic guest um, also I'll put in the blurb stuff about Christmas and sports so you can see that uh, in the meantime have a great week and toodaloo <laughs> <laughs>